During the early republic, the Roman state grew exponentially in both size and power. Under the leadership of the military hero Camillus, the Romans gained control of the entire Italian peninsula by 264 BC. Rome then fought a series of wars known as the Punic Wars with Carthage, a powerful city-state in northern Africa. The first two Punic Wars ended with Rome in full control of Sicily, the western Mediterranean, and much of Spain. In the third Punic War, the Romans captured and destroyed the city of Carthage and sold its surviving inhabitants into slavery, making a section of northern Africa a Roman province. At the same time, Rome also spread its influence east, defeating King Philip V of Macedonia in the Macedonian Wars and turning his kingdom into yet another Roman province. When Jesus was walking the earth, he lived in Israel, and at the time, Israel was under the control of the Roman Empire. Rome was, at the time, the greatest empire on the face of the earth. And it remains even to this day. Scholars still consider the Roman Empire one of the most powerful, prolific empires to ever exist. And as we just got a brief taste of from a little history book that I quoted from, Rome came to power, Rome spread its kingdom the way nations have always come to power, the way nations have always spread their kingdoms, through military conquest. That's how kings spread their kingdom, through force. But there is, at least for us as Christians, one very, very important exception to that rule. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 6, please? We are beginning, as we continue in our sermon series through John, we are beginning now, today, chapter 6, one of the more important passage, or chapters in the whole book. I'm very, very excited to walk through this book. But it begins with a couple miracles, sort of set the stage for the rest of the chapter. John chapter 6, if you begin with verse 1, I would invite you when you're there to stand for the reading of God's word. We are going to read verses 20 through 21 together. John chapter 6, 1 through 21. Thus saith the Lord. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get just a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. 
So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This bars the reading of God's word. Would you please be seated? Well, as we have seen a lot of already, Jesus is continuing to perform miracles, which we've been talking about. The purpose of those miracles are to attest to his deity, to attest to the Father's commission of sending him into the world. And in this text, he performs two miracles. We can consider one a public miracle and the other a private miracle. The second of his miracles I'm calling private because it was only seen by his disciples. Now you'll see as we get through John 6, there are people who are curious, How did, when did you get on the boat? So something's not adding up for the people. But by and large, the disciples alone saw the miracle of Jesus walking on water. Which is a miracle in and of itself, but he's not just walking on water. He's walking on the waters of a storm, <laughs> above all things. Jesus is walking on stormy waters. He had retreated into the mountains to pray. And as the text insinuates, the disciples were maybe expecting him to show up pretty soon after he fled. But he didn't. He just stayed gone. And so they said, well, I guess we better carry on with our mission. And so they get on a boat and cross the sea and suddenly a storm comes. And so then Jesus walks on the water and he meets them. And then the text tells us, by the way, the text even leaves room for a third miracle in this. Because we're told that after Jesus got on the boat, that the boat was immediately at the shore. Now, it's possible that that's just a phrase for now that they are all good, they, they got there quickly. But there's definitely room in there for a miraculous transferring of the boat from the waters to the shores. So there may have even been a third miracle in this text. Uh, we're just not entirely sure. But we are sure of one very clear miracle. Jesus walked on water. However, it's the first of his miracles that's going to be the most significant in this chapter moving forward. The rest of John 6 really focuses in on this public miracle which was seen by thousands. Jesus feeding the multitudes with only five loaves of bread and two fish. Sometimes this miracle is wrongly referred to as Jesus feeding the 5,000. Like your Bible might say that above the header, or you might see a painting, Jesus feeding the 5,000. But I say that's wrong because we actually know from the other Gospels, this, by the way, this miracle is, is one of the few, maybe the only miracle that's attested to in all four Gospels. And uh, so we have this in the other Gospels. And, and one, the other Gospels actually tell us that the 5,000 number includes literally just the biological men. It, when, when John tells us that 5,000 sat down, he's only talking about the heads of household. So it's not including the women and children. So Jesus did not feed 5,000 people here. He fed significantly more. We're talking upwards closer to 10, 15, maybe even 20,000 people. 
have gathered and Jesus has just fed them with five loaves of bread and two fish. Barely a meal able to fill the stomach of a small impoverished boy. Jesus fed maybe 20,000 people with. It's quite frankly an incredible miracle. But what I think is really important for us to focus on in this text is specifically how the people are responding to Jesus' miracles, right? Because we've already become well acquainted with miracles and their purpose. We've seen a lot of miracles up to this point. We know what Jesus is doing. He's vindicating his claims. He's vindicating his father, establishing his role as God and as Messiah. But what's interesting about this text is the way in which his disciples and the Jewish crowd interact and respond to these miracles. The crowd largely responded in the wrong way, but before I beat up too much on them, I want to point out that they did get some really important things right. They do deserve a little bit of credit. They got some significant things right after seeing Jesus' miracle. For one, when they saw Jesus' miracle, they immediately made a connection between him and Moses. They made an immediate connection between him and Moses. Look at verse 14 with me. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So the crowd sees such a connection between what Jesus just did and their greatest prophet ever, Moses, that they, they immediately identified Jesus as the one that Moses long ago prophesied would come. We've mentioned this prophecy before, but I'll show it to you just again. This is from Deuteronomy 18, 18, and God himself, Yahweh, gives this prophecy to Moses. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So the Jewish people were well aware that there was going to be a Jewish prophet who was like Moses, only better. And they've been waiting for a long time for this new and better Moses. And when the crowd sees this miracle, this is who they identify Jesus with. He's the new Moses. He's the new prophet, the better Moses. And, it's, and, and this, in this estimation, they are absolutely right. This is the connection they're supposed to be making. John makes this clear to us in a number of ways. Let me just give you a few of them. First, go back and read verse 4 with me. John reminds us that the context that's already on the minds of everybody, right? Why, why is this crowd, this many people, even in this area? Verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. This is, John is telling us this not just to explain why there's 20,000 people in this area. He is setting the theological table here. What's already on the minds of the people? The Passover. What was the Passover? Do you remember? It was the sacrament. It was the feast that celebrated when God, through Moses, delivered the people from their enslavers. God, through a prophet, delivered people from their captivity. And so here are all the Jewish people under captivity, remembering the Exodus, remembering how a Jewish prophet rescued them from captivity, and then they see this incredible miracle and they think, here's the new prophet who's come to rescue us from our captivity, just like Moses. Jesus is a fulfillment of the Passover. 
And they're seeing that and they're getting it somewhat right. Additionally, another reason why they ought to be making the connection to Moses here is because God regularly gave Moses miracles to remind the people that, yeah, you, yeah, you can trust me. You can follow me. You, I know I'm saying some wild things, but you can believe me. God would give him miracles to vindicate that. And one of the more important miracles that God blessed the people with through Moses was the manna from heaven. They're traveling in the wilderness and there's nothing to eat in the desert. And they're afraid they're going to starve to death. And so God, he actually miraculously provided them bird as well, quail. But the main thing God did was every single day, except for the Sabbath, he would rain miraculous bread from heaven to feed the people. They were eating manna, bread, from heaven every single day. So one of the chief things that God gave Moses to do to validate him as the prophet to lead them into freedom was he was able to feed them with miraculous bread. And now here are the Jews at the Passover feast. And what has Jesus just done? Fed them with miraculous bread. They're seeing this connection. Moses was able to give us miraculous bread. This Jesus guy is giving us miraculous bread. There is a very real connection here. But they actually got something else theologically right that I'm very, very impressed by. And that is that they are... So somewhat giving credit to a doctrine that we've hammered in this church, so I really hope it's become obvious to you at this point, which we call the threefold office of Christ. They are here sort of, to some degree, agreeing with the threefold office of Christ. Look at verses 14 through 15 with me. John 6, verses 14 through 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The crowd sees the miracle and they immediately identify Jesus as a prophet. This is the prophet. So they see this, oh, he must be a prophet. So what do they turn around to do? They try to make him the prophet over Israel? No, they try to make him the king. How did they get from prophet to king? He's the prophet. How does that make him the king? You see, they understand what we in the New Testament call the threefold office of Christ. Jesus, the word Christ means Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Now, what are the duties of the Messiah? Well, the New Testament is very clear that the Messiah came to fulfill the three main governing roles in the Old Testament. The Old Testament people were governed in different ways by three different offices. The prophet, the priesthood, and the king. These were th three separate spheres of authority. And Jesus came to fulfill all of them. Why don't we have prophets anymore? Because Jesus is our prophet. Why don't we have a high priest anymore? Because Jesus is our high priest. Why doesn't Israel, why isn't it ruled by a theocratic king anymore? Because Jesus is our king. He came to fulfill all three offices, the threefold office of Christ. To be the Messiah, he must be all three things, our prophet, our priest, our king. And to some degree, the people here are recognizing that. That's why they're able to so smoothly, without justification, transition from, he's the prophet, which automatically makes him the king. Because the Messiah had to be both. <laughs> He can't be one and not the other. The reason this is so theologically significant is not just because this at this point hadn't been explicitly laid out. 
But there were a number of significant Jewish theologians we know through history that that, that, that thought this was the wrong interpretation. In fact, it's one of the many reasons why Jews today still reject Jesus as the Messiah. Because in the Old Testament, after God, because he slowly gave them these offices, after they developed the, the priesthood and then the kinghood and, and then the prophets, eventually it became a law that no one man could hold dual offices. You had to have one person be the priest and the priest couldn't be the king. And the king couldn't function as the prophets. There was a separation of offices. And so the Jews were saying, no, the Christ can't be both of these. He's got to be one or the other. And so typically in most Jewish people's minds, the Messiah was associated with the king. And so as they went to this prophecy from Deuteronomy, they saw someone else fulfilling that. They thought Moses was, was prophesying of a different prophet, but it's not the Messiah because the Messiah is the king and the king can't also be the prophet. Most of the learned, skilled Jewish theologians thought these offices had to be separate. And so here, to their credit, the Jewish people, the crowd here, they reject that novelty. And they say, no, Moses was talking about the Messiah. David was talking about the Messiah. The Messiah is both our prophet and our king. They deserve credit. That's an awesome theological thing that they've grasped there. And they're exactly right. Moses, Deuteronomy 18 is about Jesus. The Davidic covenant is also about Jesus. He's the fulfillment of it all. We saw that last week. However, we have to kind of stop patting him on the back. Now it's time for us to get a little critical because they spoil all of this wonderful theological insight. They spoil it. They ruin it. Because they do get something very, very wrong. A very serious error. It's such a serious error that Jesus had to literally run away from them. He had to flee their violent protestations that he knew were about to come up. Look at verse 14 with me. When the people saw, 14 and 15, what he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The crowd wanted to force Jesus to be their king. The problem is, is the kind of king that Jesus came to be, only God can appoint someone to that role. We don't have the authority to make Jesus the kind of king that he came to be. And so this, along with the fact that Jesus resisted them, tells us very clearly that whatever they're thinking of when they think of Jesus as king, they're right in the general truth. They're right. Jesus is king. They're right about that. But they're obviously not defining that term the right way. They misunderstand the nature of his kingship. They misunderstand the kind of king he came to be and what he came to do as king. It's very clear that they see Jesus in very carnal, earthly ways. They want a king who's just like the kings of Rome. They want a carnal, earthly, national king. In other words, they want a king whose kingdom is of this world. They fail to see that the Passover is not fulfilled by yet another physical deliverance. That's what they're thinking. We were once enslaved to Egypt and Moses saved us. Now we're enslaved to Rome and Jesus is going to save us. So this is insurrection language here. They are trying to force Jesus to lead an insurrection to overthrow Rome. What they failed to see theologically is that the Passover was a physical, carnal, national thing 
which is fulfilled spiritually. It's not fulfilled by just yet another exodus from yet another earthly empire. That's how they see it. And so what they are focusing on in this text is political victory. What they should be focused on in this text is their self-need. Rather than focusing on liberation from Rome, they ought to be turning inward and examining the enslavement that they have to their own sin. The Jews are doing what most men in their natural carnal states do. They consider their carnal circumstances as their worst enemy. If you were to ask the Jewish person, who's your worst enemy? What's the biggest obstacle in your life? You know what their answer would be? Rome. But I've got news for all of us. Our external circumstances are not our worst enemy. Egypt will never been and never has been our worst enemy. Rome is not our worst enemy. False religions are not our worst enemy. Persecuting tyrannical governments are not your worst enemy. Famine, sickness, these are not your worst enemy. You are your worst enemy. Your own sin, your own rejection of God, your own disregard for the law of God is the most significant enslaver in your life. You're the problem with this world and so am I. Rome's not the problem. My sin is the problem. That's what they're supposed to be seeing. That's the symbolism of the bread. As they sit there hungry, starving, and Jesus provides them food, they're not supposed to leap from that to, oh, he's going to free us from Rome. What they're supposed to see in it is my own spiritual hunger. I am starving for liberation. I am starving for forgiveness. And he's the one who came to forgive me. To set me free from my enemy far greater than Pharaoh, far greater than Caesar, my own sin. That's the kind of king Jesus came to be. Our liberator from sin and death. That was the son's mission. That's the kind of king the father anointed Jesus to be. But what they want is they want another Caesar. They want a Jewish Caesar. They want a Jewish Pharaoh. But Jesus is not like the kings of the earth. And so here's how I want us to finish the rest of our time. Now that we've kind of summarized the key issues of the text, we've, we've established this important truth that Jesus is not like the kings of this world. In fact, I, I made a, a last second change. I changed the sermon title at the last second to Our King is Better. I want us to see, now that we've established the negative, Jesus is not like the kings of the world. He's very different. I want us to use this text to see how is he different. What's so much different about Jesus, who is a human being, right? So we, really, we worship a human being as king. We have, an, we have a human king. But there's lots of human kings. How is Jesus different? Now, this text is not going to exhaust that. But it's going to give us some really important ones that I think will really benefit us this week. And I've got three ways that Jesus is superior to the kings of earth. Jesus is the king of power, the king of provisions, and the king of peace. The king of power, the king of provisions, the king of peace. Let's begin with the first one. It's the most obvious in this text. The most obvious thing that we notice about our king as we read verses 1 through 21 is that he is exceedingly powerful. Significantly more powerful than any of the kings of the earth. 
Many kings have been powerful, but nothing like what we just saw. Right? First of all, when we call a king powerful, that's actually a figure of speech. It's, a, it's what we call a synecdoche, where we are attributing to him other things that are not actually him himself. A king who is powerful, well, all that's saying is that he has authority over a lot of other powerful things. <laughs> right? He's powerful because he has authority over a powerful army or over a powerful bank or whatever it might be. But he himself, in his own person, is maybe not all that powerful. Jesus isn't like that. He does command a host, right? He does command a a very powerful army, an angelic host and the Christian church. He's got two armies at his disposal that are very powerful. But Jesus doesn't need those things. He is in himself powerful beyond our imagination. What kings of the earth can feed 20,000 people with five loaves of bread and two small fishes? What kings of the earth have ever walked on water? How many kings of the earth have come back from the dead? And not just come back from the dead, say they were going to come back from the dead and then do it. Our king exercises a power over the natural world that is quite frankly beyond our comprehension. The wind and the waves obey him. Our king as God, as creator, has an unimaginable power. However, the thing we also have to remember is power in and of itself is not good news unless we believe that our king wields it rightly. An evil king with this much power is terrifying news. And so that's why the next point is very, very important. That our king is not just the king of all power. He's the king of all provisions. He is full of provisions. He has the ability and the desire to meet every one of our needs. In other words, we serve a king who loves us and provides for us. And what I love about this text is that it is a reminder that, yes, Jesus obviously provides for you spiritually. That's the most important provision Jesus offers you. He offers you spiritual salvation from sin and death. That's what the bread is pointing to. But the bread is still, while it's pointing to this greater spiritual reality, it's still not less than bread. It might be something more than bread, but it's not less than bread. In other words, in this text, explicitly, Jesus is not only concerned with their spiritual state. He's concerned with their physical state. Jesus has a crowd of people, and the first thing on his mind is not his own glory, his own fame. What could I get out of these people? How could I use this for some political purpose? His, his, his heart's desire in this moment is, they're hungry. They're hungry. Who's going to feed them? Do you see his love for his people? His desire to provide for his people? And he cares about their bodies just as much as their souls. God created us as embodied creatures. And when he did that, he called it very good. We are not Gnostics in this church. We do not believe the spiritual realm is the only thing that matters and the physical realm is just sort of a necessary middle ground to the spiritual realm. God loves the material world. He made it. He called it good. Jesus is going to keep his body forever. You are going to keep your body forever. Our bodies are good. Christ cares about our bodies. He cares about our provisions. He cares about our well-being. And he's full of provisions. He's able to provide for those. He's able to meet those needs. 
You see, most kings on the earth, how do most kings historically respond to the needs of their people? Do they care? Do most kings of the earth care more about the needs of the people than their own power, their own authority, their own reputation, their own fame? Most of the kings on earth have been corrupted by their power and happy to leave their people with little. Most of the kings will tax and steal from their subjects with little care until their entire country is living in impoverishment. They send them to war, tax them beyond belief, all so that they can sit and enjoy their own spoils and their own comfort. Our king tells us that he's worried about the material things of this crowd. It's the same one who in the Gospel of Matthew says, speaking to a people who are worried about what are we going to wear tomorrow? What are we going to eat tomorrow? What does Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Our king tells us, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. He is a king full of provisions. Now, I do need to qualify this though. Because if I don't, then you might be tempted to think that we're like a prosperity gospel preaching church and that I'm promising you Jesus wants to make you rich and healthy and happy and, and live in abundance. That's not what I'm saying and that's not what the text is saying. It would, it's taking this far too, you're extending the principle far too much if what you heard me saying today is Christ wants to make you rich and abounding with far more than you need. That is not what I'm saying. As a matter of fact, I think the text itself subtly refutes that abuse. Look at verse 9 with me. Verse 9. Look at what Jesus used to feed the crowd. There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Christ did not prepare rich delicacies for this hungry crowd. He duplicated a poor man's meal. And we know this based on what we know about these, this food historically. First, the text tells us what kind of bread it is. It's barley bread. We know that historically, barley bread was the bread of the poor. It's very, very cheap, very, very flavorless. It wasn't very good. Barley bread was eaten almost exclusively by those in poverty. It was the cheapest, most available bread that you could have. We also know it would have been very small. Like when we think of, it's just so classic in our American context, when you just think of five loaves and two fish, what comes to your mind? You think of five fat, leavened, buttery breads fresh out of the oven. And you probably think of two big trout or salmon, perfectly grilled with grill marks in the skin right, right there on the plate, right? This is not at all what this poor little boy in poverty was eating. He was eating tiny little rock hard cakes of cheap bread. And that's what Jesus gave to his people. He gave them barley bread. Imagine even the fish themselves would have been quite small. Again, don't think trout, don't think salmon. As a matter of fact, what we know about the fish is they were there to flavor the bread because the bread was so gross. These would have probably been pickled fish. It would have been something more like sardines. Something more like anchovies. Not a big old fish, tiny little pickled fish that you put on the bread to try to give it some flavor. So Jesus is working with five little cakes of cheap poverty bread and a couple tiny little poor man's fish. And what could he have done? We saw it in the wedding at Cana. He could have just transformed this into a luxurious meal. 
That's what he did with the water when he turned it into wine, but he didn't do that here. He felt, I'm going to meet the needs of my people, and I think barley bread is enough for them. So I'm just going to duplicate the barley bread. I think, I think anchovies are enough for them. This, this would be like when I promise you that Christ is going to meet your needs and feed your stomach. I mean that. But just know what that might mean is a piece of toast from the bread at Walmart with a cheap can of tuna. That's what it might look like for Christ to fill your belly. So I'm not, I'm not promising you riches here. I'm not promising you luxurious lifestyles and BMWs and Cadillacs. I'm not promising you any of that. And Christ doesn't promise that. But he does promise to meet your needs. He does promise to provide for you abundantly, maybe not as you imagine, but as he imagines. And we know he provided so abundantly for these people, they had leftovers. Right? They had to take 12 baskets and clean up the leftovers. Christ went above their needs, beyond their needs. As a matter of fact, the 12 baskets most likely represent the 12 tribes of Israel. The symbolism being that Christ not only meets the needs of his people, he goes beyond their needs. And that's my promise. Christ is going to meet your needs. He's going to go beyond your needs. But don't leap from that into, I'm going to be living this luxurious, wealthy, rich lifestyle. He might give you a ton of bread tomorrow, but it might be barley. It might be barley bread. He's not promising you riches, but he is promising to take care of your needs because he is a loving king with abundant provisions and he loves to meet our needs. By the way, let me just make a side application. This is an important thing that we sometimes stress when we tithe. You'll, you'll hear us say this in the prayer sometimes before we tithe. You know what's one of the things we, we use the tithe for? We use the tithe and the offerings as a means of grace to remind us of this very principle. Everything I own comes from King Jesus. There is nothing that you have that isn't a gift to you from your king. He's the one who met your needs. He's the one who provided. And so the beauty of, of donating to a church is what it does is it forces you to remember that. Because the consequences of not remembering that are tragic. The more and more we live our lives in self-assurance thinking, I did this, I earned this, I got this, and we take God out of the picture, it will have damaging effects on your soul. But when we tithe, it forces us to remember everything I have is a gift from you. And I'm happy to give back. What am I giving to you? Something that I earned? No, I'm giving to you something you first gave to me. Because he's the king who meets our needs. It's his provisions that we reap. Every time we tithe, we are reminded, we are forced to be reminded that we serve a good and gracious king who abundantly provides because he loves us. But there's another quality, an important quality to our king that most of the kings of earth lack. And that is, he is not just the king of power and provisions, but the king of peace. Because I ask you, what could possibly bring us more comfort in the midst of our distresses than the very things we've already talked about? I don't know what you're going through in your life right now. I know the stresses and anxieties that I have. I know some of you. I know some of the hard things that you're going through. But I'm sure everyone in this room has got something they've not told me about that keeps them up at night. Can I remind you that in the midst of that trial, you are ruled by a king who is more powerful and more benevolent than you could possibly imagine? Our king, because of his power and his love for us, that ought to bring us a peace that surpasses understanding, as the Apostle Paul says. 
And unfortunately, we often resist this wonderful gift from Christ. Christ gives us with a supernatural peace. And if you're anything like me, if you're anything like the disciples, you are very quick to forfeit this gift. Right? Look at verses 5 and 6. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus immediately uses his love and his benevolence for the people as a test for his disciples. Right? This is a stressful moment. They're they're anxious. This is a lot more people than we imagined. We got 20,000 starving people here. And Jesus says, how are we going to feed them? He's giving them an opportunity to exercise peace. He's giving them their opportunity to say, you know, I don't really know how we're going to feed them. But I know I'm with the guy who turned water into wine. I know I'm with the guy who just spent a week healing the sick in Jerusalem. I know I'm with the guy who has validated and proved that he is the Son of God sent to earth by the Father. So I don't know how we're going to feed him, but I'm not concerned about it. This is their opportunity to step up. And in the midst of troubling circumstances, experience a peace that our benevolent, powerful king offers, but they fail the test. They're panicked. I don't know what we're going to do. A full day's wage would barely give one person a bite to eat, let alone 20,000 people. And the other one, I mean, there's this boy here with this food, but what's this going to do? They're panicked. They're stressed. They forfeited the peace that was right there for them. And it's not even the first time they do it. They forfeit it again. It took two miracles for them to finally get this through their heads. And I don't mean to beat that up on them. I've been living for 32 years. I still haven't gotten it through my head. But then they go out under the water. Verses 19 and 20. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Again, even in the midst of this storm, in the midst of this calamity, they're panicked, they're afraid, they don't know what to do. They miss out on another opportunity. Trust your king. And they fail the test twice. And Jesus has to miraculously come to them and he has to physically, literally tell them, it's me. Stop worrying. Be at peace. It's me. And you know what I love? Notice, catch this. Christ called them to be at peace before he helped them. He did not bring them to shore and say, be at peace. They're still in the storm. They're still on the waters. And what does Christ say? I'm here. So be at peace. You know why that's important? Because far too often we think that our peace and our comfort comes when the thing that's making us lose our peace is fixed. And that's what the kings of the world offer you. Your problems are bad, but I'll fix them and then you can be at peace. Christ offers a peace in the midst of our storms. He offers us a peace that surpasses our understanding. You don't need the waves to stop. You don't need the sun to come out. What do you need? It is I. All you need is the presence of Christ. 
All you need to know in all of life's most difficult circumstances is the most powerful, loving king that the human brain can possibly fathom is with you. And he's in control. And this is why we can have peace in spite of our circumstances. We can find peace long before we get to shore. Because we have an anchor in the midst of the storms. Christ is the king of peace. And he offers it to you now. And I know there are many in this church who can testify to this. I know some of your trials. I know many of you have been through fire. And yet you've experienced just how much peace can be found among the flames. Because you knew Christ was with you. Christ was in you. Christ was over you. Our king does not bring dread upon his people the way far too many kings of the earth do. For so many people, when the king shows up to town, they're afraid. When our king shows up, we're at peace. Because he's the king of peace. And he provides peace and provision and power that exceeds all human understanding. So isn't it good to be a Christian? Isn't it so comforting to be under the reign of an all-powerful king who is full of nothing but love and provisions for us? Right? Glory to God for our king. The world has her kings. Ours is better. <laughs> 